Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Best concert? Yeah, Steve Miller Band and the Eagles. How appropriate. How I was just singing Big Old Jet Airliner. I think that's a Steve Miller song. Correct me if I'm wrong, listeners. Oh, doorbell. Oh, always love when the doorbell rings. Carrie Reed. Wow. It's working. Carrie Reed is joined. Salem is joined. D, I didn't think we would uh, the Carrie's computer was working. Man. Looks like it is. It's nothing but good news on the Ben Jarowski show at the moment anyway. All right. I'd love to win a Grammy. Okay, JB. Okay, JB. You're not going to win a Grammy, all right? Just stop it. <laughs> your, your Ben Jarofsky show for Thursday, June 23rd, is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, <laughs> Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, sometimes what kind of pot to smoke, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. Chicago Reader, chicagoreader.com. And if you want to help out this program, you can. chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. J-O-R-A. V is in victory, S-K-Y. It is Thursday, June 23rd. And this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this in memory of Adam Thursday, and here's why. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll make a confession. You know, I try to be as honest as I can uh, with you every day when I come on this show. I'm playing in pain today, a little bit of pain. Uh, I'm smiling and laughing at uh, Dennis's uh, gags and uh, those clips he plays of J.B. Pritzker and and Mary Lori Lightfoot. (laughs) Mayor Lori Lightfoot, uh, but inside I'm crying uh, because uh, a dear friend of the family uh, died the other about two weeks ago, and uh, at the age of 29, natural causes, very sad. And today was the funeral. Adam Cohen is his name. I'm probably uh, going to do a write about it for my uh, reader a newsletter. And I've known the kid since freshman year of high school when he was a freshman in high school, which goes back about 16 years. So today was a funeral and it was a gathering of, uh, well, I mean, it was a gathering of a lot of people that I didn't know, but these kids who are now turning 30 uh, and early thirties, who friends of Adam going back to days when they played little league baseball together in Wells park and they're all coming together from all over the country. And it's just so sad, so profoundly sad. Uh, you know, just when a young man dies. So anyway, my um, condolences to the Cohen family, uh, AC, uh, the show's for you. And uh, so anyway, um, that's what's on on my mind. I know my two distinguished guests are going to cheer me up a little bit. Uh, Salem uh, Colo Julen, a managing editor of the Chicago Reader, and making her, this is her second appearance, Salem. I don't know, Dee, if you remember this, but one day you uh, were absent I believe you were in San Diego, as I recall. And so we did, oh, what a week at Salem, volunteered uh, to come on and banter with me about the news. 
Uh, she did a great job. So, uh, Salem, welcome back, Cotter, uh, to the Ben Jarofsky Show. It's great to have you here. I see that White Sox uh, sign in the background. I like that already. Okay, Salem, I like that White Sox sign uh, there in the background. It's the only uh, team I know, Ben. Wait, time out. Didn't you once tell me you were a Blackhawks fan as well? I, I have am, a. I mean, in theory, yeah. In th- okay. Uh, well, I'm a diehard White Sox fan uh, as well. I've been a White Sox fan forever, and I'm sticking with them, even though Tony Larusa leaves me baffled. I believe Kerry Reed is also with us. Kerry, can you hear me? No. It says Kerry Reed on the. I, I thought Kerry Reed of the reader. Uh, the, uh, Her was mic is join muted us as well. Her mic is muted. I don't know if she can hear us, but. Um, carry on anyway there's a oh my goodness there's an ant crawling across my screen first time that's ever happened (laughs) all right salem the last time you came on the show there's carry you hear me now yeah there you go all right there we are technology is not my friend today but uh yeah my my condolences to you and your family ben too sorry to hear about that thank you carrie i appreciate that yeah as i said you could hear me uh, you and sam are going to cheer me up today so uh, <laughs> you know big responsibility there um i'm playing in pain as i said earlier uh carrie uh if you want to go back and listen to uh, a great interview if i must say so myself uh carrie took the deep dive on the turbulence how about that carrie i plucked that word out of nowhere uh, that existed at my beloved reader my beloved reader would not be my beloved reader without a little turbulence every now and then uh, I've survived somehow or other like 30 years of turbulence uh, at the reader. Carrie took the deep dive about the last uh, little set that we went through, and it's a great interview, if, if I must say so myself. Uh, Carrie took us A to Z on that. And then at the end, a little theater talk, uh, and there will probably be some theater talk as well. Uh, all right, Salem, uh, last time you were on the show, uh, you, I don't even know what your title was, but it's different than the one you have now. Now you are the managing editor. Uh, so first of all, congratulations, uh, for the new gig, uh, the raise, the promotion and everything else. Talk a little bit about being managing editor of the reader. I don't know about the raise, but, um, we <laughs> just gave you one. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to help continue to, to, steer the course uh with this newspaper and with our website and um uh so after uh karen hawkins who uh ben i know you had as your direct editor for um a bit of time um moved on and she'll now be working with a a great outlet called the 19th um that covers uh things on a national level that the reader doesn't and so I'm, i'm very happy to um that karen will still be um, in our in our midst here in Chicago and, and doing that kind of uh, reporting and editing for them. Um, but after she left, we, we had uh, kind of a gap in um, keeping the engines running, so to speak. And, and um, my colleagues and the powers that be at the reader decided that I could help, you know, steer the engine. So so here I am. And um, yeah. Yeah. And I'm still working on getting, you know, ponies and, and a pile of winning lottery cards for everyone. But, you know, I have an agenda. That's my vision for for the reader staff, at least for, for the next couple of years. We'll see if it all comes to fruition. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, well, since since we aren't working in the office together, can you just have like foosball tables delivered to each of our homes and we can sort of play by remote Would that? Would that work out? Is that in the budget? That's a great idea, Carrie. <laughs> Carrie, uh, I know you just... 
But there was a moment in time, I'm not making this up. I'm not sure either one of you were at the reader at this moment in time where the reader was purchased by the Chicago Sun-Times uh, and the Sun-Times was controlled by it in a, by a different entity, much different than who controls the Sun-Times now. And um, uh, Michael Farrell was his name. And he had this vision of the newspaper would be set up much like what a dot com, how a dot com or how I imagine a dot com, like a really successful dot com with it's got money flying, floating in as opposed to a dead broke alternative newspaper. Carrie Reed, I'm not kidding. So we went to the bright one to the Sun-Times office to, for our new reader digs. There was a game room like, oh, and you're really tired, man. You go to the game. Oh my God, man. There was like, man, were either one of you here for this? Salem, were you there? Were they, they would have like the room where they had the, the, the cereal? It, it was the food room? <laughs> I I have not, but I, I've heard of other um, non-alternative media outlets that have such things like a, like a snack room and uh, like a, like a teacher's lounge sort of situation for staff members so they can properly recharge and create. I mean, um, yeah, those, those are really nice things. I'll just say that for, for anybody who has that. We are not the sort of outlet who can necessarily spend money on building that. We actually don't have an office that accommodates every, everybody who works for the reader uh, at this point. But, um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to uh, throw any stones at, at, you know, maybe maybe our fellow journalists who do enjoy a game room. And I, and I like the idea of unlimited cereal available to me but yeah yeah, yeah i no. love that limited I, first of all i'm not sure any journalism uh th- th- i don't know if there's any journalist outlet uh journalistic outlet in town that has a, a snack room with cereal i i don't know that i'm unaware of that uh it, all my journalistic listeners uh you want to weigh in on that one and let us know if like be easy i know all you guys are listening right now be easy do you have a snack room with cereal i love see i'm a lover of cereal sam so i'll be when I, I didn't go to the office at all, all that often. When there's a staff meeting, I would be sitting down eating. Anyway, neither here nor there. All right, Salem. Uh, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, the issue, this issue with the reader, is a mixture of arts uh, and politics, uh, and uh, some extraordinary articles in there. And I just want to take a moment to introduce you to the listeners and introduce this uh, issue of the reader to the listeners. So why don't you start off talking about? Uh, the one, uh, well, let's talk about a little about Fritz Kagi. You told me this out loud when you said it. Uh, a reader writer made Fritz Kagi, who's Cook County Assessor, look interesting. Uh, so uh, give a shout out to that writer and talk a little bit about uh, Fritz Kagi, the Assessor. Go ahead. So our issue that comes out, it's being delivered to uh, outlets and newsstands and uh, reader boxes in the Chicagoland area uh, today and tomorrow morning. Um, officially it's our summer theater and arts preview. So, uh, we'll have Carrie on to talk a little bit more about some of the stuff that, um, she and her writers brought to the table for this issue. So it's jam packed with a lot of stuff, but what our news desk did, uh, for this issue was, uh, made a little bit of a elections package, uh, because here in Illinois, we have primaries coming up. Um, and there's uh, some great Q&As with some candidates that um, haven't gotten a ton of coverage from other outlets um, in this issue. So all of, the, uh, all of those uh, articles in the election package are now up at chicagoreader.com. So if you haven't been able to get out to go get a paper 
Um, you can you can already see it on our website. Um, but Ben, you're referring to a Q and A that our writer Kelly Garcia did recently with Fritz Kagi, who is currently the Cook County Assessor a job which a lot of people really don't know what the ins and outs of that job is and and how his job relates to the rest of the Cook County uh, ecosystem, so to speak. Um, And I, I am, I, I really did not know a lot about both Kagi and his job until reading this Q and a that uh, Kelly Garcia put together. She got him to talk about what he thinks are his accomplishments. Uh, This He's currently in his first term. He'd like to make a second. Um, he has a challenger um, in terms of, uh, I'm just trying to find that person's name. See, this Carrie is how Steele. little I know. Correct. Correct. Thank Carrie you. Steele. Right. Um, who Kelly also reached out to that person for comment and wasn't able to get a hold of them uh, before publication. So, so it's um, yeah, if you're at all interested and, to be honest, the, the, the extent of my knowledge about Fritz Kagey himself has been these television commercials that he's had on recently where he claims that he wants a better picture for, you know, his detractors to throw darts at, which I kind of, I, I um, disagree with him on his logic there. Like, why would you give them anything to throw darts at? But that's neither here nor there. I think my argument is really with the people who are running his, his, uh, his, his commercials on, on the campaign. But anyway, it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting insight, I think, into somebody who has the sort of job where we know it exists, but really, except for people who are into politics, yeah. you know, who knows what the assessor does? And yeah. Who knows why that's important? You know, it's a really important job. The assessor, if, uh, I always say, if you pay property taxes, but one way or other, everybody pays property taxes. Uh, if you're a renter, you don't directly pay uh, property taxes, but obviously your landlord does. And more likely than not, your landlord will pass on any increases to you through higher rents. So everybody pays property taxes, whether they realize it or not. Uh, and the assessor plays a key role in determining how much you pay by val- uh, evaluating uh, what your building is worth. Uh, the, the notion of if your building was up for sale, how much is it worth? And then they create an assessed valuation of your building. The tax rate for the county is the same. So everybody pays at the same tax rate, but the value of the building is the thing that fluctuates. So just think of it if your building's worth. Uh, here comes a great moment in math, Sam. Let's see if you can follow this one. If the, uh, the tax rate is 10% and the assessor says your building is worth $100, then you multiply that 10% terms $100 uh, and you get a $10 tax bill. If they say it's worth $200, uh, then you pay uh, a $20 tax bill. So the value of your building uh, determines how much you pay in taxes. Uh, and it's a really controversial job because if, if he lowers Kerry Reed's uh, properties uh, assessed value, that means automatically Ben and Salem pay more. Uh, and, uh, yeah. and, and I've specifically asked them to do that, but I have, I'm waiting on the answer. So <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you this, Carrie, uh, at Salem, I had this moment of a revelation. I was like everybody else, uh, in the city of Chicago, walking through life, utterly clueless about taxes. Uh, and, uh, and then it was about 22 years ago. I want to say, uh, the assessment on my house on the North side went f- 
just through the roof. Uh, I think it was 2001. I thought that's roughly my memory. Uh, and our tax bill tripled and it was, whoa, where did this come from? Uh, and it was from that tripling of the tax bill that I'd started taking the deep dive into municipal financing, uh, in the city of Chicago. One thing led to the other. It's been 20 years of writing about tips and taxes and stuff like that. So I owe it all to the Cook County assessor. Uh, it wasn't, uh, Fritz Kage, It was Jim Houlihan at the time. Uh, I'd anyway. say to you, like the, I mean, the, the, we, we see the greater extent of that, those of us who have lived in Chicago for a long time, and that when your property value goes down, you know, you start to see the effect in, in the greater community to that. So, you know, higher property values, property values, even though it may not supposed to be this way, but it, it, it can kind of indicate where your neighborhood's going to be going. So, um, so conceptually, like what, the assessor does is is uh, it has interesting effects on the entirety of the city uh, and where we throw our resources. Absolutely, like I know you're a Southwest Sider. Uh, you live on the Southwest Side, uh-huh. so it, it, it there's often a, a lag between the times. Uh, how do I put this? So property values start to go up through gentrification in the neighborhood. It's happening like a Bridgeport, moving further south uh, and southwest. Uh, it'll it'll hit Brighton Park. It'll go to the back of the yards. I mean, property values will go up as people with more money move in and pay more money for the houses. But the folks who live there, follow me in this, ladies and gentlemen, the people who live there are still making the same amount of money they were making before. The pro- So the property, the assessment, the rising assessment that they um, figure for your property bears no relation to your ability to pay the more the rising tax bill. And that, that's that moment of realization, like, uh-oh, there's a system here. I don't understand the system. It's controlled to one degree by the Cook County uh, uh, assessor. I don't even know who the assessor is. Uh, so it just kind of pays to be vigilant. Uh, if, <laughs> or I just go, you can just go through life, Salem, just like, well, I'll just pay the bill and not worry about it. Well, I mean, that's what the the point of the coverage for this issue has been, just to make sure that people are informed as to, you know, we we hear a lot that people need to get out and vote. And I think that's something that even the candidates will kind of depend upon for the entirety of their outreach sometimes to the Mm -hmm. people that they're serving. Just get out and vote. You know, if you want to change things, you need to vote. But a lot of times we don't realize the ramifications of that, like who we put into power you know, who they're connected to and um, how that affects, you know, what's going to happen to us individually in the next couple of years, you know. So, um, yeah, in the spirit of that, I'm, I'm happy to report that the people, the Reader News Desk, made these kinds of insights available for people like Fritz Kagey. And um, we also have an interview with Kena Collins, who's trying to work to, um, take Danny Davis's seat this time around. Uh, we have an interview with Precious Bernie Davis, who's going to be, um, who's kind of a, a first-time candidate, as, as far as I know. Um, so uh, Katie Pratt talked to Precious Bernie Davis about the ins and outs of that. And, um, you know, I mean, it, this this is our job as the reader to make sure that people are actually informed as to why they're being asked about who they are voting for, all of those really basic things so yeah and uh yeah Keeney collins uh, no stranger to ben jaroski's show she's been on more than one occasion she's running for congress in the seventh congressional district against the incumbent danny k 
Davis. Uh, and that is going to be, uh, well, that, everybody's assumption uh, is that no incumbent congressman will ever lose. Uh, very few people of prominence will challenge an incumbent congressman on the idea that you're just going to get clobbered the way Barack Obama was clobbered by Bobby Rush uh, back in, what was that, 2000, 2000 on the button. Uh, so just wait until the incumbent steps down and then everybody runs, which is just what's happening in the first congressional district. I think there's 15 candidates. Uh, but uh, in the seventh congressional district, Keena Davis uh, represents justice Democrats and uh, she's challenging Danny Davis on the grounds that he's not as progressive uh, as he should be for a district like that. Uh, and uh, so I'm watching that one with great interest, uh, Salem, because that would completely what was this, break all precedent in Chicago for an incumbent Democrat, uh, Democratic congressman to be defeated. We're definitely going to see with that one, you know, how far Davis's reach still is in terms of the newer generations of activists and uh, community uh, workers in that district, because um, Kena really represents a um I, I think more than some of the other candidates, a certain generation of people um, in, in that area. And I don't know if all of them are completely aligned with or, or have been alongside um, Davis and all of his decisions in the last few years. So do you know what the K stands for, by the way? Yes, I do know this. I've known Danny Davis since 1979. Oh and the K, gosh. and I remember when he was just Danny Davis, he added the K, uh, I forget when, somewhere along the line, it stands for Kenyatta. Danny oh. Kenyatta Davis. Uh, and I, I got this weird thing about middle initials. I'm always curious, like when people put a middle initial in, like, why? okay, what is the, the name? I, it's a, so, uh, Michael Joseph... <laughs> Uh, Madigan, you know, uh, uh, Michael Jeffrey Jordan, uh, or or Harry S. Truman, where the S is just an S. It doesn't stand for anything because apparently both is, wasn't the story. Both his grandfathers had names that began with S. And so therefore to keep peace in the family, um, they, they just went with the initial. This is what I was taught at the university of Missouri journalism school. Perhaps it was just a myth, but that that is what I, uh, (laughs) and, and there's no period, no dot after the S. By the way, I'm just going to say this, uh, reader, uh, editors out there who are always correcting my mistakes. God bless you. Thank you. But J.B. Pritzker, there's no J period, B period. It's, it's, it's similar to uh, Harry S. Truman, Kerry. There's no period. He, and people have been putting periods in J.B.'s name uh, forever. And I actually saw an interview where he goes, I don't have a period in my name. I'm like, Harry S. Truman. So um, kind of weird, though, isn't it, Carrie? Isn't the impulse to put the period after S in Harry S. Truman or J period, B period? It, it, it is It is one of the things I remember from my copy editing class in Mizzou way back in the Pleistocene era that we were not supposed to put the S after Harry S. Truman. And as you can imagine, in a state like Missouri, that name comes up perhaps more frequently than it would you know elsewhere. So I guess he's sort of their Lincoln. I don't know what, what to say about that. <laughs> but better than a lot of politicians that have come out of Missouri in recent years so you know Harry what's the governing principle in copy editing following on this so follow me in this somebody does it their way Harry S no period Truman but that's wrong you get what I, that's that's grammatically incorrect S there should be a period after S and the impulse of any good copy editors to correct a mistake so you could put what how do they pronounce that SIC it could be Harry S and then put in parenthesis SIC <laughs> Right. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think increasingly we're kind of going with what 
at least for proper names of people, um, we'd have to get our music editor, Philip, in to talk about all the variants on how bands spell their names. Um, but for, you know, if, if uh, a playwright goes all lowercase, we will now, you know, like the E. Cummings rule, we will we will go with that. Um, I don't know that it was always that way, but I, I feel like, and Salem, you may, you know, want to chime in on this as well, that in more recent years we've been, let's respect the way people style their own names, so. But I guess we haven't been doing that with JB, so maybe we need to have a little confab of the uh, of the copy editing people. <laughs> I, I'm not sure where the the other newspapers are with this. Uh, I, I I who is it? I read somewhere. Uh, it may have been Shia Capos who from um, uh, Politico said, "I'm from now on going to do it with J without the periods." But like your whole impulse is to put a period there. Come on, JB, get her. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I just want to enter this conversation uh, by saying I'm, I was not prepared for a deep dive on specifics <laughs> of proofreading or copy editing. But you, I, when, when, when you took the job, you were told there would be no punctuation involved. <laughs> no, I, I just, in terms of this podcast today, I am so glad that, I, I mean, I feel like, first of all, you know, again, the reader is on the cutting edge because, you know, what we've brought to Ben's very popular international podcast is 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 copy editing and proofreading as you have not seen this kind of conversation before. See, I have always wanted to have a reality competition show called Top Proofreader, but I have not been able to get anybody to go, go along with this. Yeah, we have, we have many ideas at the reader for the people who who write the Chicago Med the Chicago police, the Chicago fire, the Chicago library, all those shows. Yeah. Um, just give us a call because at the staff, yeah. we, we've, we've talked about curious top proofreader, um, you know, <laughs> a la top chef. Uh, we also have another show that, that we've been workshopping, you know, um, just specifically about uh, listings. You know, I, I don't know exactly what it would be called, but yeah, we have many reality shows that could happen. Carrie, how would your show work? Uh, you know, I guess we just have a panel of judges and they would say things like, I don't really feel you in this semicolon. And then, you know, from there, you're you're sent away every week. They just, you know, have to make the I cut. See. So making the uh, cut probably with a red pencil or equivalent thereof. So and and they would yell at you while I did right. this, yes. this semicolon. How many times have I told you? There'd be uh, I, a set builder with like a huge blue pencil, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like an old timey, and then you just get checked off. I got to I got I, I must make this confession since we're going down here. We're getting to get to Prince. Don't worry, Salem. We're going to get to Prince, which is what we really want to talk about. Um, but uh, I get to say about semicolons. I hate semicolons. I don't know why I hate them. They're just weird. So I never put them in. And I've had editors put the semicolon. In. No, no semicolon. Anyway, there's shit. I, I am addicted to M dashes. I, I I don't know if there's a twelve step program for people <laughs> like me, but I should probably check into it at some point. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. I'll be right there in that uh, program as well. All right, uh, one of the uh, stories that's coming out in the uh, summer arts issue uh, that I'm very excited about uh, is about the great Prince. Uh, and uh, Salem, you added this story. You have a lot to offer on it. Salem's a huge Prince fan. Uh, I'm a little late to the Prince party. I, uh, I mean, I, I know his great songs. I saw Purple Rain, the movie, but I didn't realize the total greatness of the man. This is a confession I made uh, within an interview with Devin Thompson. I urge everybody to check that interview out. He's a, uh, a singer in Chicago and a huge Prince fan, uh, hugely influenced by Prince. And uh, so Salem was after Prince died. Uh, I was like, 
you know, I'm going to just, I just started looking into YouTube clips and it was like two hours later. I was like, oh my God, what did I miss? I can't believe I missed, it just blew my mind. The guitar, his ability to, on the guitar, a phenomenal guitar player. I couldn't believe, you know, that, I mean, we talked forever on this show, you know, at least a couple occasions about his rendition of While My Guitar Gently Weeps, uh, that it's just worth watching just for when he throws the guitar up in the air and it never comes down at the end. Um, so talk about the Prince story. Go ahead. Sure. I mean, Prince is just so, I think actually uh, Prince is one of those artists that it is fairly easy for people to get into. Um, even at this point, even if you've never heard a Prince song, because, you know, he only lived until 57, but he passed that life full of amazing composition. He was a multi-instrumentalist. He was not only a great guitar player, but a pianist, you know, I mean, I think there are a, a slew of other instruments that he actually learned how to play while he was coming up in the clubs and, and with other people's bands. Um, and uh, a lot of people also, um, I think of my generation and, and maybe a little bit older might know about his, him as kind of a, a, a pop cultural experience because, you know, in 1984, he came out with uh, the movie Purple Rain, which really blasted him into kind of uh, mainstream stardom in a way as an actor and, and writer and performer and that kind of thing. And he had this whole aura about him, right? He was known as the purple one. Um, there was a famous dispute that he had with his uh, record company in the 90s where he ended up um, publishing a, a photo of himself where he'd written the word slave on his cheek and he refused to release any of his uh, recordings that he was Apparently, he was constantly recording, like he would stay up all, all night and, and compose. And then famously, he would like call people he was collaborating with or his friends at like three, four in the morning, just whenever he thought it was OK to call and, and, and try to try out new stuff with them over the phone. And so but uh, but yeah, in the 90s, he had this dispute with his record company at the time and he uh, changed his name to a symbol, which which a lot of your listeners might might remember that happening. Uh, and so he, he released at least two things that I know of, um, uh, one album where it wasn't, a, you know, attributed to Prince, it was attributed to the symbol so he could get a, around <laughs> yeah. the, 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 the issue that he had with the record company. But all of that said, so there is a, an exhibition that is opened up on Michigan Avenue here in Chicago called Prince the Immersive Experience which is a lofty title for any kind of exhibition, even for somebody like Prince who has a lot of stuff that you can look at. And our, our writer, um, Jack Reedy, who has written, he's a freelance writer. He's written for us uh, mainly in the music section of, of the reader. Um, he's a huge Prince fan. He actually wrote a story for us uh, uh a little bit ago, I think it was last year, maybe 2019, about uh, the influence of Prince's music on the uh, house music communities here in Chicago, and um, and how that kind of like uh, worked, and and the little bit of the connections that that we see in in uh, in house music here, and how it developed to what Prince was doing. Um, so Jack took it upon himself to tour this exhibition. The exhibition was brought here by a company whose sole purpose is to make these uh, experiences. And I'm using that 
word with air quotes and making little air quotes. Um, and so the idea is you go in and it's kind of the feel of a museum exhibition, um, but you're invited to interact with some of the aspects of the different installations. Um, there's rooms that are set up to look like you're within one of Prince's music videos. Um, so the, the lead image that we use for the story, which is in our print issue that comes out this week, and it's also online today, um, is an installation that the company put this together has made that uh, mimics exactly what you see in the When Doves Cry music video, which is a, um, a clawfoot white tub in the middle of a darkly purple lighting lit room and there's strewn about flowers, you know, and it's like, it's like the sensual experience. Like there's, there's steam coming out of the tub and you just imagine that Prince is going to walk in any Mm -hmm. second. And so that's the kind of thing that they're offering in this exhibition. Uh, Jack talks about some of the things that you can do while you're there, but then he also talks about what these exhibitions get right and what they don't um, for these kind of large things. Now the, the people who made the exhibition were also responsible for the office, the experience, which was a uh, an, an exhibition. Uh, I'm not sure if it was on Michigan Avenue or if they rented another space on the north side to do it, but it was just kind of all of these details and elements from the television show, The Office, um, for fans of that show to go in. And a lot of these kinds of exhibitions are sometimes you know, mocked in a way by people in the art community um, because they're using the elements of what we would see in like an art gallery installation, right? You know, you're, you're looking at objects or stuff like that. But these are really made for, these are made for people who don't necessarily feel like they want to go to a museum, they want to go to a gallery. These are made for selfie experiences. You know, a lot of the stuff, and you're encouraged to take pictures of yourself and your friends interacting with this stuff. So... Um, but with Prince, I think the important thing that Jack wanted to see is, do they get the music part right? Because that's why we love Prince, right? We love the songs, we love the music. So you'll read in the article, those of you who get to read it, you know, the, um, the company that made this exhibition did do some work with Paisley Park, um, who manage, uh, Prince's estate. So they got the rights to use certain things. There is a, uh, a room in the exhibition where you can go in and you have the ability to kind of mix some of the tracks that make up, um, I believe let's go crazy. Um, I might be wrong on that. So you get to kind of play with like, Oh, this would have been what it's like to record this sort of thing. And this is what all the tracks sound like, which is something that people don't always get to do if they're not involved in music production. Um, so there's that, but you know, I think Jeff's conclusion is, you know, um, people really have to decide for themselves with this kind of exhibition. So um, definitely for the fans, um, you know, it it might be of interest to people who don't know a lot about Prince. um, But I think these sorts of things are geared towards people who are comfortable taking pictures of themselves in front of things, Uh, you know? Yeah, uh, that was very well put. I, I have to admit, I'm in that category. Uh, and uh, uh, like, for instance, I love the Grammy Museum. I don't know if you've ever been to the Grammy Museum. It is exactly what it you think it is. It's a museum run by the Grammys. And, uh, you know, it's a, 
the Grammys a big event in my family. So we've been watching Grammys forever. Eat, eat the dinner in front of the TV. And, and it, if, uh, so going to the Grammy Museum, like you see old videos, past Grammy performances, the gown that someone that Madonna was wearing, you know, the, the uh, they got like Frank Sinatra's studio uh, recreated and like kind of like cheesy stuff uh, that I'm, well, I'm a little embarrassed how much I love the Grammy Museum. So, well, yeah, and you have a lot of company in that. I mean, like, especially, like, you know, like in this exhibition, one of the items that they have straight from Paisley Park is a, a plush, like, um, uh, some. It, it's it's a plush seat that yeah. apparently, and I don't remember this, although I know I've watched these videos time and time again, but apparently this this chair was visible in the When Doves Cry music video, you know. Um, now, again, as a fan, I'm not sure that I've been dying my entire <laughs> life to go see in the chair, but then when you're thinking about it, it's like, okay, there's a possibility that the man himself was sitting in this chair, you know, maybe sweat a little bit, and, you know, then then you just get excited. So yeah. I think that... You know, there, there's an element to that in all of these exhibitions. And also, you know, I think um, in some way, uh, uh, curators at museums might differ with me on this, but I think there is an element to, you know, what do people really want to see out of our history and out of our cultural history? You know, it may not be what I'm totally interested in, but, you know, if, if we're interested in getting people into the doors, you know, it, yeah, everybody's going to be about excited about this thing that Prince like held on to this, you know, this, this, this painting that was in his house, whatever it was, it gets us closer to, to these legends. So, yeah. 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 I have no problem with it. I, I, I'm actually, I'm going to go probably go to this <laughs> exhibition uh, and uh, talk about it on the show. I, I have absolutely no problem with this stuff. I mean, who are we kidding? Sal, Prince would come and play the United Center. There'd be 20,000 people that come see Prince. You know, Prince could, like, sell out five nights. I mean, there's such a, people love, it's adulation. He's a rock star. Oh, we, yeah. We, we put rock stars on pedestals, you know, and that's why we, we call them rock stars. That's like a metaphor that extends beyond, like, music. So who are we kidding? You know, and I'm I, saying I that think we're above it all. Popular music, like, and and this happens with all of the arts. You know, sometimes people are afraid to have an opinion about what they like and what they don't like, right? Because they're afraid that their opinion's not informed enough. They're afraid that you know it is perfectly fine to just love Prince because you you love dancing to 1999. It's totally fine to have that opinion. Let art critics tell you what to look for after that. Okay, I've loved this album. What else should I look for that, you know, I didn't hear about it because I, it wasn't on my radar in 1984. Prince wasn't on my radar in 1984. What, what else, what are his, what's in his back catalog that'll give me a little bit of that experience? Like that's, that's our job, you know, as, as people who write about the arts. Um, but, you know, so on some level, I'm happy about these kinds of experiences because they are getting people a little bit closer to the the kind of discovery that I would love them to have. Um, I'd say, though, I would encourage anybody who's just plain interested in prints, even if you don't go to this exhibition, 
you can you can find a lot of his albums available on the internet now because finally the estate has made a lot of it available to streaming services. Um, you know, if you're lucky, you could probably go. Well, actually, you can go to the public library and check out. Uh, the Chicago Public Library has uh, every single album of his available for checkout. Yeah. So you're you're welcome to do that. His his first album is actually pretty amazing for 1978, um, and he was very young when he made that, and it just gets better from there. So go listen to the music, like that's that's the first step. Yeah, that is the first step. Uh, and by the way, uh, we're gonna I'm gonna pivot to Carrie and get her her uh, review of a play that just opened uh, that you two thumbs away up. But when you were going on that riff, and it was a good riff, I remember a good friend of the show, Lior Galio, who the reader's great uh, music critic, uh, came on the show. It's back in the days when I was still at the Sun Times in the studio. People came into the studio. And said, Carrie Reed knows that studio. She was there, uh, and um, so you know. Like informed opinion. That's Lior. The guy's really smart, knows it inside out better than anybody. We at the time we called him the editor, but he's like an intern for us, Miles Porter. Love you, Miles. Shout out, Miles. Uh, and he was in the studio. And when Lior tr- uh, trashed Drake, and I mean, okay, so you know, Sal, I, I don't know uh, this uh, rap music at all. I, so I really, I am. It, I'm not ready to, be, to participate in this conversation. Leor was just talking about it to somehow went on Drake. Man, Miles, he, who, he, what? <laughs> he couldn't deal with that. that. He loves Drake, ladies and gentlemen. And, he was saying, uh, why, why is Leor going on about this kind of duck? I don't get it. But, yeah, yeah, that was me, not in my <laughs> I thought it was like uh, he was offering a review of a hotel for some reason. All of a sudden. <laughs> it was also equally befuddling. So, uh, But so, that said, I think Leor's opinion, I, I don't know what Leor's opinion about Drake is now, and that's like the magic of, of doing this kind of work. And, and writing about this stuff like as as critics sometimes your opinion about certain people's output evolves you know and like everybody doesn't make the same album every every year of their career you know so i mean i have no idea there's an incredibly I... terrible uh lou reed album like incredibly terrible i will happily burn it whenever <laughs> i see it i wouldn't yeah. do that to all of the velvet underground but you know yeah there's that I uh, I had a conversation with Lior about I think he still is not a big fan to put it mildly. But the thing, this is the thing about a critic uh, and informed opinion. Uh, Lior is one of the sweetest guys in the world. I love him dearly. But when he comes to his opinion, he's putting his opinion out there. He doesn't care who he offends. And so, like, he doubled down on this Drake thing. And it was almost it was like, whoa. <laughs> a battle here in the studio. But, but uh, you know, one of my, sorry, ahead, I was going to say one of my favorite things, uh, Laura Molzon, who was the long t- editor and a longtime dance critic at the, the reader. Uh, she did a critic's choice when stomp, which is the big, you know, the sound dance, physical theater, you know, bang on a can mm-hmm. extravaganza came through in her critic's choice. She quoted from her review the first time when she hadn't really liked them. But in her Critics' Choice, she had this negative quote from her first review, and then right underneath it, she wrote, I don't know why I had such a bug up my butt. And I love that. I love the fact that she was just (laughs) able to reevaluate and think, you know what, I maybe didn't understand what they were trying to do the first time. I was expecting something different, and I didn't get it, and that colored how I look at it, which I'm not saying at all is the case with Lior and Drake, but I mean, I think that is one of the advantages of covering things for a long time is you get a chance to sort of reevaluate and you have a lot of different voices in the mix, which is one of the things I love about having 
so many critics uh, and freelancers at the reader. Carrie, I got to tell you this. Uh, Roger Ebert, who had just turned 80 years old, one of my heroes in journalism. Oh, wow. Is that uh, right? 80? Yes. I know. That's wow. wow. Let's take a moment to pause and think about That's that wild. time passing yeah. and uh, pass yeah. around the pipe. Uh, but anyway, uh, so the great Roger Ebert uh, was very critical of the moving The Shining. When it first came out, Stanley Kubrick's movie of this uh, Stephen King novel. I don't know if either one have saw it. I love it. I've seen it like 50 million times. I love scary mm-hmm. movies. And I just think it's a great movie. It's a huge impact. And he was very critical of it. Uh, and then later, much like Laura, I don't know if he had the line. <laughs> I don't know what that, <laughs> but it's a similar experience. He goes, what was I thinking? This is a great flick. And uh, I just, over this weekend, Carrie, I don't know if you ever saw this one. Because uh, it's before your time, but I rewatched my wife and I rewatched The Exorcist, which I've seen. I don't know, conservative. Uh, yeah, I have movie. seen the, uh, the the first night I spent alone in an apartment on my own. I watched The Exorcist, which might not have been the smartest move. <laughs> oh no, Carrie! Oh. Yeah, Carrie. I, I love that movie. I'm like, I loved it when it came out. I remember when it came out, and I remember waiting in line to see it. And it was Christmas time. Uh, I think it was '74 or '73, something like that. And um, I just thought it was the greatest thing in the world. I was just a kid. Uh, and it, Carrie and Sam, I'm happy to say, I think it, it, it holds up as um, not just a great uh, horror flick, but kind of like a parable about mm-hmm. people yeah. overcome with uh, demons and how do you drive the demons out. And I think it's a parable for where our country is right now. I don't want to go political on you, Salem. But uh, I just think it works as a parallel uh, for where we're at right now. So. Oh yeah, and and we've we've all had our share of being confronted with people who have just seemed to turn green and are spewing <laughs> something at us and spinning their heads around. So, yep, yep. Uh, but right. I think it just I think you just described my cat, but I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, Salem, no, he's have, fine. I'm joking. <laughs> Salem, how many times you've seen The Exorcist? Sounds like you've seen it a few times. Oh God, um, Exorcist probably like I mean I was raised Catholic, so maybe nine, ten times that I can remember. Um, so in, you know. in your humble opinion, it, it, does the Catholic church uh, come off as the good guys in the exorcist uh, from your memory of it? You could do it as like a theological discussion, a debate. Uh, oh God, I would love that. Uh, I just um. saw it. And so it's fresh <laughs> in my mind. You haven't seen it in a while. I say the Catholic church comes off looking pretty good in the exorcist. And all of a sudden done. Um, I think they look good in the same way that maybe like John Wayne looks good in one of his movies. You know, I mean, like there's that hero narrative that, you know, that's that that's what we're looking for. I, I think to me, like the exciting part of it is Linda Blair and how her I I, I don't know where her career would have gone if that wasn't her first movie. You know what I mean? But she's actually a tremendous actress in my estimation. So, and the only other stuff that I remember seeing her in that made any kind of impact were some kind of terrible, um, you know, kind of uh, exploitation movies in the 80s when she was a little bit older. She made them look like Cheryl Rainbow uh, Thomas, I think is her last name, and and people of that nature, you know. So that's a whole genre that I don't think that can get made today, but like, Linda Blair kind of ended up in that realm. You know, those are the parts I think she was offered, but I, you know, to be able to do that. And she wasn't a nine year old when she was actually doing the acting for that movie, but to be able to do what she did in that movie at a young age is, is pretty tremendous. But yeah, I, I, I mean, I think 
I think I've probably seen it so many times because it became a popular thing after it came out on VHS for, you know, the, the, um, uh, sleepovers and stuff like that yeah. with my Catholic school friends. I mean, let's freak <laughs> yourselves out, you know, like one of those things. And I think too, you know. There's a great book. It's probably over 20 years old or maybe even 30 years old now by David Skull called Hor- uh, Monster Show, A Cultural History of Horror. And if I recall correctly, one of the things he talked about in The Exorcist was that you know, the movies like The Exorcist, Village of the Damned, Rosemary's Baby, they were all coming around when people had more control over their fertility and the whole idea of do I want children, do I not want children? So this is taking it to the extreme of what do children do in my life? And maybe the children are, you know, maybe they're the thing I'm afraid of having in my life, which is a really interesting angle on it. And I don't know if everyone would agree with that, but it's a, uh, it's a terrific way, I think, of kind of thinking about how genre really does come from deeper seated, you know, sociocultural, you know, things in the under in undercurrents that are going on outside of just the, the realms of fiction or, or film. By the way, uh, it's so funny that you made the, the uh, uh, Rosemary's Baby. I don't know if you guys saw this, uh, just momentary, lots of tangents on this show, but the New York Times came out with a list, 25 best books about New York. And I don't know if you saw this one. Uh, and Rosemary's Baby is on that list. So this is the novel, not the movie, not the Roman Polanski movie, the novel that it's based on by Ira Levin, which is a great, scary book i urge everybody to run don't walk to the library and get it out uh and i was like all right man that's good they made it made the list is not has not been forgotten and a great flick too uh as insane i love thinking about that as a new york story too because yeah i'm I'm definitely gonna have to reread that yeah that's right yeah upper west side uh, and uh, a very eclectic list. I heard folks to, I may do a whole show on the list, uh, find the right person to talk about it. All right, Carrie Reed, uh, can I let you go without you uh, just taking a little uh, deep dive on colored water or water, yep. excuse me, at the Victory yes. Garden Theater? You gave, you sent me a copy of the review you wrote. Right. Uh, it, it Which isn't like, online yet, but it will be soon, very soon. <laughs> okay, so uh, it, it read like something I would write. It, it was sort of like, Run, don't walk to right. see this. I think you literally said something like I, that. Yeah, I, I think I started by saying I never say that in a review, but I really did want people to know that this, you know, I think there's like plays that are important, capital I, that they're talking about important things and you should probably go and you will feel good about yourself. I mean, there that maybe is a part of this play, but it really is just this visceral uh, piece that is set against the backdrop of the Flint water crisis. It's by... Uh, I think a New York-based playwright, um, Erica Dickerson Dispenza. My understanding is that Victory Gardens was going to produce the world premiere of this back in 2020, and then things happened. Um, and their new artistic director, Ken Matt Martin, kept his commitment or kept the theater's commitment to bring it in. It has since been done at the public, and I'm not sure maybe a couple other places. Directed by Lillian Brown, who's one of Chicago's very best directors. It involves three generations of women who are all living in a home in Flint. And their lives are all upended in some way by the ongoing water crisis. Um, it works at this sort of mythic level as well as this very um, great detailed level of domestic drama, family drama. What does it mean for these women to try to hold together? They're facing everything from the youngest daughter struggling with leukemia to uh, the, uh, the the realm, the, 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 the mother or daughter of the matriarch, I should say, who is trying to 
keep her job at GM and in keeping her job at GM, she is going to have to go against some of her union friends that she's been with for a long time um, and not protest and not join this class action against the city. It really calls up what I feel like, and Ben, I don't know how you would feel about this. I think one of the most underreported issues uh, prior to the election 2016 was the emergency manager law enacted in Michigan, used by then-Governor Rick Snyder, to just really overturn and disrupt legally elected, duly elected governments in towns, primarily black uh, towns in Michigan, black-led towns or majority black populations, and just said, you know, we don't like who you voted for. They're not competent. We're going to bring in our own people. that, That, to me, was just such a blatant um, attempt to overthrow democratic elections. And to me, it feels it, it's mentioned here, of course, in this play. And it feels like a harbinger of what has been happening since and that we've certainly seen most explicitly in the January 6th hearings. But it's, you know, it's, it's political, but it's not it's not a screed. There is anger. There is also great love. Uh, she does not pull any punches in her play. Um, there's there's a great deal of sorrow. And I know and I, I I didn't read any of the other reviews until I wrote mine, but then I went back and read some comments that the playwright had made about being very inspired by, you know, Lorraine Hansberry, the great Chicago playwright of Raisin in the Sun. And there is that element to this. It's a domestic drama, but it's about larger issues. And it's about how racism and, and uh, to some extent, the, you know, <laughs> the predations of capitalism within a family can cause people to turn on each other uh, at times when they want to be most supportive of each other's dreams. Yeah. Wow. That, uh, it, it just and sounds, it is funny. I don't want, there are very funny lines in it too. I don't want to make it sound like it's a complete downer because she, uh, uh, uh Erica Dispenza, Dickerson Dispenza, I'm sorry, has such a great ear for dialogue and for the little details of how families interact, especially, you know, families who are, you know, facing crisis and trying to hold each other up, but also just like, God, you do this thing that makes me nuts. You know? <laughs> so. Yeah. No families interacting uh, and the tangents that go off in their life. There was uh, that are actually some of my favorite parts of any uh, play. You said something, Carrie, I have to follow up. It's not directly related to the sh- uh, show, but I have to follow up on it. You said, I didn't read the reviews until I wrote my review. Is that a general practice that you follow? You don't read other reviews because you don't want to be influenced by those reviews? Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes if a show's been around for a while, you know, it's it's hard to, you know, I, I'd certainly read reviews of Hamilton before I ever saw Hamilton because it was kind of unavoidable. For this one, you know, I've been looking forward to seeing it in 2020, and I just kind of decided I, I wasn't going to read anything until I had a chance to experience it myself. You know, it's the same thing. Sometimes do I, and I hadn't read the play either. I, I think it is published now, but, um, you know, there are... Um, different schools of thought about that. Should you read a brand new play before you see it? Or should you sit in the audience like everybody else and experience it for the first time? I tend to go with that direction. Although it is nice to have access to the script afterwards, if I can, just to make sure I'm not, you know, getting things wrong as far as, you know, details. Um, But yeah, I I generally don't read other reviews. um, As I said, unless it's something that's been out there for a long time before it hits Chicago. But since this was a Chicago premiere, I kind of wanted to go, go to it as fresh as possible. If the play in my humble opinion is good, I go out to the lobby as soon as it's over, carry and try if they have to buy the script because one of the great pleasures of reading in my humble opinion uh, is to go home after seeing a really good play 
with the script and then staying up till four in the morning, which is what I'm usually up to. Uh, it's got to be reading something. Read the script fresh. You hear you hear the script in a way. I know you think I'm kind of weird, but you really hear the voices oh, in your absolutely. head. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I've done that so many times and the frustration, like my, you know, I love King James. I don't think that's in script form yet. Uh, the, the play. I don't know if it fans. is or not. No. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, Oh man, when the play was over, I rushed down, you know, Steppenwolf, they got that little uh, venue there where they sell the plays and no, they didn't have it. So <laughs> Uh, was and it's also a good way to support the writers, of course, too, because I, I don't know if I'm giving away secrets here, but playwriting is not generally a super flush kind of thing to get into unless you start, you know, getting deals for Netflix. And apparently those are starting to dry up as well. So, oh, man, that's bad news. Uh, all right. So uh, I can't weigh in on this. I'm going to go see it uh, and then I'll yeah. probably bring you back, Carrie, and we'll do the deep dive. Uh, and I, if I can get that script, I will read it. Your, your review was so uh, like exhilarating that I wanted to go see it. Uh, and I'll be out of town. How long will it be running? at? It's running. It's only running through July 17th and it's been getting, you know, I, I would like to think this is, you know, just me, but I think everybody else has also been kind of weighing in very enthusiastically. So um, I would suggest trying to get tickets as soon as you can. Uh, although the three gardens, you know, it's a, it's a fairly decent sized theater. And uh, I'm just, yeah, I really uh, admire Ken Matt Martin, his leadership over the last year coming, you know, he came in helping lead the theater out from the, the you know, the pandemic. And um, I think he's made bold programming choices, a real commitment as Victory Gardens has always had to writers and new writers, but he's doing even more, I think, to diversify the playwrights that they're, uh, that they're working with. So um, yeah, I, I, I hope it's a big hit for them. So, but I hope you can also get a ticket. <laughs> I'm going to so. get a ticket. I'm a, uh, yeah, I'll get a ticket. And it's spelled C-U-L-L-U-D. W A T T A H at the Victory Garden Theater, running to June, July seventeenth. Although the reviews are strong, so they may extend it if the demand is there. Uh, and um, so, yeah, when I come back from LA, I'm definitely going to see it. And as I told Carrie and Salem, this I'm going to visit my kids in Los Angeles, and I timed it. So like, I am such a geek. I admit it. I'm taking everybody. We're going to go see King James. It played at Steppenwolf. It's the play about the basketball fans in Cleveland. Uh, who um, are obsessed with basketball. Sounds familiar. Do you know if it's uh, the same cast, Ben? Absolutely, was it? same cast. Oh, okay. Uh, so Chris Peretti, I think it's Chris Peretti, is that how you pronounce it? Yes. Who's, uh, my, who, again, listeners might know from Abbott Elementary. So Yes. Uh, and same director. And uh, so maybe LeBron will be there. I'll be hanging out with LeBron going, what's going on, LeBron? Hey, Benny J, I love your show. Uh, maybe that. Yeah, happen. you need to get him in for an interview <laughs> of some sort. <laughs> Somebody I, needs to show you how to record on your phone. So it, yes. you can at least just have it, you know, it's immediate uh, response. <laughs> that is a great idea. Hey, yeah. uh, LeBron, just somehow or other, Carrie Reed's going to hook that up for me. I'm not quite sure how. But <laughs> yeah, yeah me and LeBron, we're, we're pretty tight. So I'll see uh, what I can do. <laughs> so, guys, I was kind of blue. Uh, put it Molly when the when this uh, conversation began, and I'm feeling a little more cheered up now. So I want to thank you, Carrie Reed uh, and Salem, for cheering me up. Uh, you didn't even try to. You like, didn't even tell jokes or anything. Uh, but it's been a somber day uh, for me and my family. Uh, once again, a memory of Adam Cohen. And Salem, I think I'm going to write a piece about it. So get ready to edit it. One of the many great things Salem gets to do is edit my copy. Uh, <laughs> 
So uh, thank you both very much oh, for coming on. Th- 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 thanks for having thanks for having me, Ben. Appreciate it. Have a yeah. good day. All right. Thanks for good. having us, Ben. All right. I also want to thank the man, myth, the legend, the pride of joy of Alton, Illinois, without whom this show is possible. And as Carrie Reed and Sam will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D, and the D stands for Demarvelous. Give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. 